the conversions of which we are witnesses were renewed at a later period on board the Northumberland and at St. Helena. It was only necessary for those, the emperor, to have brought into contact with those who were most strongly prejudiced against him in order to dissipate their prepossessions and to secure their admiration. Sir Hudson Lowe himself was at times incapable of resisting his seductions, as he has often acknowledged to me with the expression of a hyena who feels itself unable to burst the fetters by which it is bound. On the 23rd of July, we bade adieu to France. At four in the morning, Ushant was in sight, and soon after, we saw the coast distinctly. In the evening, we were in sight of English land. On the 25th, between eight and nine o'clock in the morning, the ship cast anchor in Torbay. General Gorgot awaited us there. The government had not allowed him to land, and he was a prisoner on board this lady. In order to prevent him from having any communication with the shore, the sloop was placed in quarantine to prevent all possible access. This state of things was a sinister omen of the fate which awaited us, and cast such a dark shade over our thoughts that we were insensible to the magnificent aspect of the hills among which we were embosomed. We were only roused from our gloom by the immense and endless spectacle of beautiful and elegant women who saluted us with their pocket handkerchiefs and shawls which they transformed into flags as evidences of their sympathy. This revived our hopes that the national feeling would open the gates of England for our reception, or at least force the ministers to allow us to proceed to America. Such of us as were acquainted with English endeavored to ascertain the truth by conversing with such of the officers of the Belrefin as had been led by their duties to be in communication with the shore or with the Slaney. Their reserve, however, baffled all our efforts and gave us multiplied proofs of the manner in which a uniform changes the whole nature of a man. The independent character of the English is no longer to be recognized under the epaulette. And so was the mystery and the mouths so closed that we could almost have believed ourselves on board one of the Venetian galleys belonging to the Council of Ten. The thoughtful and anxious brow of Captain Maitland was the only indication which betrayed the nature of the news he had received at Torbay. On the next day, countless causes received a letter through the hands of Captain Maitland from Lady Clavering in London, this lady was an old and faithful friend of Madame de las Casas. The secrecy of letters is the only thing which is inviolable in English policy, with a very few rare exceptions. We cannot say as much for France. Lady Clavering had heard by the public papers of our going on board the Belrefin, and of our expected arrival in England, either at Torbay or Plymouth. 
She was anxious to send duplicates of the reports which prevailed in London, respecting the determination of the government. Messrs. Liscasa said nothing. He kept to himself the dreadful news which he had learned of the almost certainty of a deportation to St. Helena. He said nothing even to the emperor because, as he often told us, he was not willing to cease to act as a comforter. The Duke of Rovigo, however, received an account from London of the highest importance, which dissipated every shadow of the illusion under which the emperor had his heir to labor. The Privy Council had just held a deliberation on the question whether the terms of the proceeding of the Congress of Vienna prevented England from delivering up the emperor to the vengeance of Louis the Eighteenth, and the dispatches of the Duke of Wellington urged them to adopt bloody and terrible determinations. The energetic opposition of the Duke of Sexus alone saved England from the infamy of committing an execrable crime. 